Good morning, everyone, and I apologize for being late, uh, but I believe uh, we have a study session on the Brown Act, and Mr. Dominic Holsek is going to educate and enlighten us. Thank you, Mr. President. This is um, a follow-up to a similar session about 18 months ago, and my intention is to go into a little more detail in a couple of areas um, and then just touch lightly on, on some of the material that you've heard before. First, I think it's helpful to quote the policy as stated at the beginning of the Act because it, it is really used as an interpretive tool by courts and others to determine compliance with the Act. And the policy is very broad. The people of this state do not yield their sovereignty to the agencies which serve them. The people, in delegating authority, do not give their public servants the right to decide what is good for the people to know and what is not good for them to know. The people insist on remaining informed so that they may retain control over the instruments they have created. And that is in the context of fairly broad delegation of discretion. If you think about uh, the, the administrative state where uh, administrative powers are delegated from the state level down to the local level and from the local level down to, to bodies such as this, there are fairly broad powers delegated. Uh, if you think about the the powers that this board has as a Tidelands trustee, for example, and, and fiduciary for the, for the Harbor Revenue Trust, uh, Harbor, Harbor Revenue Fund, uh, those, that's a substantial responsibility and a substantial delegation of power. And essentially the Brown Act is saying, however, the, the people having delegated this huge degree of responsibility nevertheless retain the right to know in, in a fair degree of detail and with very limited exceptions how that discretion is being exercised. So it, it stands in contrast to, the, um, to the, the broad delegation is this retention of the right to see this process happen as it happens. The, uh, another passage worth uh, worth mentioning is the tie-in to the Public Records Act, which makes a similar point regarding documentation of um, board activities. Agendas of public meetings and any other writings when distributed to all or a majority of all the members of a legislative body of a local agency by any person in connection with a matter subject to discussion or consideration at an open meeting are disclosable public records under the California Public Records Act. So it extends not just to um, the, the meetings themselves and discussion of, of business, but it extends to documents received, staff reports received, et cetera. So that's the, that's the general sunshine policy consistent with uh, federal sunshine acts and, and, and similar acts in many different states. The, the, the Brown Act is uh, one of the more rigorous, however, and as you can see, goes, goes fairly far. Now, those general policies play out in the context of, of 
of specific definitions. And the, the first one, which is of, of concern to the board, is the, the definition of meeting. And this is one that, that is also worthy of, of dwelling on for a moment. A meeting is defined as a congregation of the majority of members of the legislative body. So that's, that's more than half in, in, in the case of a, a, a five-member board, that's three. So a formal meeting, a formal noticed meeting, is uh, typically limited to the scenario where you have more than three. But before you take too much comfort from that, um, there's a very important B part to that A definition in the statute. A majority of the members of a legislative body shall not, outside a meeting authorized by this chapter, so outside of this, this formal congregation of three or more members, a majority shall not, outside a meeting, use a series of communications of any kind, directly or through intermediaries, to discuss, deliberate, or take action on any item of business that is within the subject matter jurisdiction of the legislative body. Let me, let me read that again, because it's, it's, it's a, a, a very restrictive provision as far as the board accomplishing some of the more sensitive tasks that the board has to accomplish. A majority of the members of a legislative body shall not, outside a meeting authorized by this chapter, use a series of communications of any kind, directly or through intermediaries, to discuss, deliberate, or take action on any item of business that is within the subject matter jurisdiction of the legislative body. And you should know, the Act used to say that you can't discuss, deliberate, and take action. So the focus was on developing a consensus outside of a meeting. But the act was amended to say you can't even discuss business outside of a meeting. That, that is a really significant limitation on, on what the board can do outside of a public meeting. And, and it, it has the corollary, which is that that means a lot of fumbling towards policy, fumbling towards a decision, which is inevitable when you can't discuss stuff outside of a meeting, has to happen within a meeting, and that lays you open to criticism that you, that you have received from industry sources, I've been told, that sometimes the meetings sound disharmonious, which is not a surprise. When, when you, you are forced to discuss issues for the first time in a public session where you do not have the opportunity of working out the kinks before you come into a meeting. Um, that, I think, is something the public needs to understand because that is the reality that the board faces. The, it, it's easier for, for a, a, a private sector corporation, for example, to show the world a harmonious front. Board meetings happen in private. The, the, uh, um, the wrangling and the and the arguments and the and the disharmony that I'm sure happen just as much in the private sector as in the public sector occur in executive sessions. And by the time announcements are made to the press, um, the uh, the kinks have been worked out. That that's a, a 
a luxury this board simply doesn't have. Just to um, spell that out in, in a little more detail, <coughs> the, the risk here includes not just inadvertent meetings of three board members where substantive matters get discussed, although we'll talk about that in a little more detail later, but it involves uh, serial meetings with, with less than a quorum. So the, the, the danger here is that one board member talks to another. Neither one of those board members has any control over whether the other board member will talk to a third and or a fourth. And those are defined under the Act as, as violations. If there is a, 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 a chain of communications or what they call a hub and spoke where one board member or even a staff member solicits the views and, uh, and even worse, the consensus from the board members in a, in a serial fashion where no two board members were ever present in, in, in a room or on a, an electronic communication. So this, this uh, discussion or development of a consensus outside of a meeting where the, the communications are not even made in the same time frame but might be time shifted by email or, or some other device uh, can inadvertently lead to a Brown Act violation. So obviously direct communications are, um, are uh, of, of concern there. Uh, personal intermediaries is probably more of a, of a concern for council members who have staff. So you can end up in a Brown Act violation if uh, council members are never even involved in the discussions, but their staff members meet with each other and develop a consensus on a, on a council. That, that is defined under the Act as a potential violation. Um, documentation is, is of, of the greatest concern here because you can end up with a a, an inadvertent violation and proof of that violation all in one fell swoop. So um, you need to be very careful about uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, those kinds of, uh, of entities where you might not even be directly involved. Some of those communications occur automatically. You update your your profile and that's automatically copied to your, your friends or, or those to, to whom your account is linked and that can inadvertently lead to a violation. Um, but certainly emails is the, is the prime example where uh, uh, emails can be copied even if you had no intention of, 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 of violating the law. Uh, memos are, are of concern to uh, those can be distributed to, to other board members and inadvertently lead to, to a violation, uh, phone messages, etc. cetera. The, the, the one clear exception that we have and, and guidance that we have from a court case on that issue is regarding a city manager or in our case the executive director. The executive director can meet individually with each board member either by phone or, or um, in person 
uh, on all agenda items or just agenda items anticipated to be uh, problematic or, or controversial and brief those board members that uh, both the, the board members and the executive director have to be very careful that the, the views of other board members are not communicated during that process. So uh, as long as uh, the, the the spirit of the of the communication is essentially just a heads up commissioner we anticipate that there will be a large audience for item number three we anticipate that their their issue is uh, whatever the issue is our view is that that's not a valid concern um, just wanted you to know that that's likely to be controversial at the board meeting today that's fine, but if, if that leads to a discussion about, uh, well, you know, I, I tend to agree with the commenters, how do my other board members feel, that, that would clearly cross the line. So that's, that's the one safe harbor that has been established within the last few years for um, uh, communications outside of a meeting. Otherwise, the default is you're much safer putting it on the agenda and having the discussion on the agenda even if that can be uh, uncomfortable. Standing committees are uh, committees that have a, uh, a standard uh, jurisdiction, personnel, uh, budget. Uh, this board currently doesn't make much use of standing committees and and part of the reason I think is that the the advantage of the committee structure is somewhat undermined by the the, the Brown Act in this regard a, a standing committee is subject to essentially the same rules as the as the board itself it, those are those must be noticed those are public meetings and the one disadvantage over a board uh, over the full board meeting as a board is that other board members who are not on the standing committee can attend those meetings but can't participate. And in the past when we've had that structure, that has been extremely frustrating as you can imagine. The, the other type of committee is the ad hoc committee, which we do have some examples of at the moment. Ad hoc committee is quite different. And ad hoc committee would be uh, for a a specific purpose and limited time and uh, a good example would be uh, a committee to uh, determine the process for the hiring of a new executive director for example as soon as the new exec executive director is hired that committee's function would automatically cease it, it, it it's self terminating in that sense and because of that limited lifespan those, uh, those are not required to be public meetings as long as the committee is less than a quorum of the full board. So if you have ad hoc committees of two, those are not public meetings and do not need to be noticed. And one of the disadvantages uh, of, of that, uh, and you could view those first two characteristics as advantages or disadvantages, um, other board members can't even attend because obviously if you have um, a, a third that becomes a quorum of the board as a whole but under the rules uh, even if you only have a, a, a an ad hoc committee of one which is 
technically feasible, although very seldom done, uh, even there you could not have another, uh, another member attend. So uh, just to summarize those two, that, that is why the board currently meets uh, uh, typically as a board on all issues and why the committee structure tended to fall into, into the, at least the standing committee structure fell into disuse. It, uh, it, 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 it was no less burdensome in terms of notice and, 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 uh, and holding the meeting in a public forum such as this, but had the strong disadvantages of not permitting other, other board member participation. A uh, couple of other things to bear in mind, special cases are conferences open to the public. That would be um, AAPA type events. Um, as long as those, th those are widely open to the public, even if there's a fee to be paid, as long as any, any member of the public who's willing to pay the fee can attend that meeting, uh, more than a, a quorum of the board can attend, provided you don't caucus during during those meetings or discuss issues of, of um, specific interest to the Port of Long Beach, except as part of the program. If you're a speaker, obviously that's that's a a different situation than than huddling in a corner talking about Long Beach business. Uh, open public meetings, such as a city council meeting, similar similar rule. Uh, you, more than a, a, a quorum can attend, provided you don't discuss separately unless it's noticed as a joint meeting. If, if, if you notice a, a, a city council meeting along with a Board of Harbor Commissioners meeting or a joint meeting with the, the, the Port of Los Angeles, for example, then you can discuss business because it's essentially two meetings happening simultaneously in the same room. And the other exception that's, that's stated in the Act is purely social or ceremonial occasions. And the emphasis there is on purely. Um, some some events shade into uh, uh, official events, and those can get tricky. So, when in doubt, check with us, and we can we can give you a read on on what the um, what the rules provide. Um, I'll go very quickly through the the middle section, which I I think is is uh, working knowledge for for most of us who meet regularly. Uh, with this board, uh, notice an agenda, a, a, a brief general description to inform interested members of the public about the subject matter of each agenda item under consideration is required. And that, that's the key. Uh, we, we strive as staff to, to be as descriptive as we can so that uh, the general public can understand what the item is. Uh, to be avoided there is, is the jargon that we might understand, but that the public, members of the public would not understand. And you do occasionally see agendas posted for other entities where you'd be hard pressed to figure out what the heck they're talking about. It's all jargon and, and, and codes and, and acronyms, and that the, the act really strongly discourages. It should be something that a uh, a, a member of the public should be able to understand um, and attend or watch on, on tape if they, if they have an interest in that subject matter. Regular meetings require 72 hours notice. 
uh, special meetings, 24 hours notice. And there is provision that I don't think we've ever used for emergency meetings of one hour or less. And essentially, you have to give the best notice you possibly can under those circumstances. Those are dire emergencies. The, the act talks about earthquakes, uh, civil strife. It, it, the, these are not things that can be used to, to bootstrap in a subject that, that you've forgotten to post. Uh, but uh, there, you should know that there is the ability to meet on fairly short notice, at, and typically what notice is required is to call the press and let them know so that they can monitor the meeting even if the word can't be gotten out more generally. Closed sessions are um, the flip side of, the, of, of the, the, the basic point that I made at the outset, which forces the board to, to talk about a lot of difficult subject matter in public, and that is that only very few and enumerated categories of, of subjects are allowed to go into closed session. There, there's a recognition in the act that uh, there are some things that, that would be positively harmful to discuss in open session. But again, the presumption is that um, only those bases may go into closed session and only if you strictly meet the definitions of the closed session. The first is real property negotiations. And even that is defined quite narrowly to purchase, sale, exchange, or lease of real property. Uh, we, we deal in some property transactions that, that are not strictly speaking within, within, that, um, within that definition. But the theory behind that section is essentially that obviously the parties we're dealing with don't have to do their thinking in public. And it would be an extreme disadvantage if, if our bottom line became readily available from an open discussion, which then would eliminate our ability to negotiate with, with the party who does not have to give us their bottom line ahead of time. So that's the fundamental idea there. Uh, litigation, similarly, uh, there's a recognition that uh, you need to have an opportunity to, to review your options with counsel without doing that in a public forum when, when in litigation, because the other side doesn't have to do their strategic thinking in, in an open forum. Personnel, uh, we've, we've talked about that one a couple of times recently. Uh, the definition includes uh, uh, closed sessions for the appointment, employment, evaluation, discipline, or dismissal of employees. Um, uh, fortunately, most of them, most of the closed sessions that this board has with respect to personnel relate to the, the front end of that transaction, not the back end of that transaction. But the theory there is that, for example, if you have three candidates for, for a position, uh, obviously only one is, is going to get the position and the other two may be employed and may not want the fact that they're looking at alternative employment revealed to the public. So the, the, the fundamental reason for the personnel exception is to protect the individuals involved. Similarly, if someone's accused of, of, of something in the course of their employment, until a determination is made that they're, they're actually 
responsible for doing what they're accused of doing, that accusation is kept in, in, in closed session. There are some special rules that apply to that, so if, if, if we do end up in that scenario, that's another area where uh, it's important to check with the board. The individuals involved have some due process rights that, uh, that need to be addressed ahead of, ahead of the meeting. But that also indicates why um, some personnel-related decisions nevertheless have to be in public. For example, uh, general discussions about staffing levels, about budget with respect to personnel, uh, those don't involve the, the personal privacy issues of, of the, the people involved um, and, and are generally considered to be important enough public issues that those need to be discussed in public. Even the salary for the individual that you pick in closed session needs to be set in open session. So again, the personnel uh, exception is limited in its scope and uh, limited largely by those, those privacy rights of the individuals. And uh, finally, there's the, the threat to public security exception, which um, allows discussion of issues of security that uh, would be potentially harmful to discuss in open session. If you're uh, discussing vulnerabilities, you'd obviously not want that to be announced from the rooftops so that all the bad guys can figure out exactly where, where your, your weak points are. But the threshold is fairly high. It can't be, uh, it, 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 it does need to be a legitimate um, concern that, that, that needs board guidance towards addressing and, and not uh, uh, simply general planning for security. It, it needs to be fairly, spe fairly specific. Finally, penalties and remedies. Um, there, there is provision for criminal intentional violations. They're misdemeanor violations. They have to be intentional. I've, I've never, I think those have been invoked once or twice in, in, the, in the case law. There are some examples of, of criminal violations, but I think those have to be fairly deliberate and fairly egregious violations. I, I, I don't see uh, a, a widespread tendency to invoke criminal sanctions in the Brown Act arena. Much more typical is, is civil sanctions where motive and intent are irrelevant. They're basically strict liability offenses. And the district attorney or any interested person can get an injunction and monitoring. Uh, Charlie Parkin and I went to a, a seminar recently at which uh, some of the Sunshine advocates, including uh, uh, nonprofit watchdog entities, were in attendance. And some of the stories were quite harrowing. Of It, it seems to take a fair degree of bad faith on the, on, the, on, on the part of the agency to get the ire up of these groups. But once they uh, decide that this is, a, this is a bad actor, this is an agency that, that is not acting in good faith, is not uh, giving the public what the public is entitled to, they can be very 
persistent in, in seeking injunctions, in seeking monitoring, forcing the entity to record closed session discussions, taking that into uh, uh, in-camera uh, meetings with the judge to determine whether there have been additional violations. The, 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 the degree of oversight and, and, um, uh, and uh, interference in a non-judgmental sense with the agency's function become really, really significant. So uh, it, it, it doesn't happen very often, but it, it can happen. And it, it certainly is something to be avoided. Actions that, that are taken in violation of the Brown Act can be declared null and void, and attorney's fees can be awarded. Again, these, these are not widely used, and, um, and I think require a degree of, of uh, uh, notoriety on the part of the, the board or, or city council involved before those tend to get invoked but they are out there and available. And one of the things that uh, they can demand, which we discussed at the last meeting, was the, the demand for a cure. Uh, some of these can be addressed, especially inadvertent violations can be addressed by simply wiping the slate clean and beginning the, the process that, that involved the alleged Brown Act violation over. So that's a pretty powerful tool. That, that can be used, I think, uh, even when someone decides that, uh, that, that uh, an entity is not acting in good faith. You can demonstrate your good faith by, by a willingness to, to do a do-over. Um, and that's obviously provided it's, it, it, that in turn is done in good faith. So that's the... Um, the overview with a little more focus in, in selected areas, and I'd, I'd be happy to answer any questions at this stage. Thank you. Any questions, Commissioners? Commissioner Dines. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, Ms. Uh, thank you Mr. Holzhouse, uh, for your presentation. I'm, I'm quite sure it took some time to prepare for. I know the Brown Act can be quite complex. Um, I have a couple of questions um, in regards to uh, things that you brought up. and. Um, the first one, uh, and thank you for bringing forward the fact that sometimes uh, um, boards and councils uh, seem a little in shock when uh, certain items are brought forward because uh, they don't have a heads up about the item because there cannot be any uh, outside discussion. Um, but um, I'm sorry, specifically um, as an example, uh, um, so... I remember last year specifically uh, during our salary resolution, I brought forward uh, many potential amendments and uh, these amendments are, are something that I believe I could not share with my fellow commissioners. And so uh, I, I think that uh, it caused a lot of, uh, uh, I, I don't know if, it, if, I can't speak for my fellow commissioners, but uh, uh, maybe it wasn't uh, considered uh, uh, like I was bringing them forward in, in, in goodwill. Um, and so there seemed to be a lot of opposition to these, but uh, to be clear, I, I could not reach out to my fellow commissioners, but you're suggesting that I could have gone to the executive director and, and that person could have briefed the board members on this issue, is it, or, or is, that, is that something that was still a little out of bounds? 
staff staff is always an option um, and and board members use uh, staff referrals quite regularly I'd, I'd like a report on that I'd like further information on that and that takes it back into the public arena through the public records exception if if um, a, a commissioner requests additional information or uh, a memo that could support an amendment, for example, on a particular issue, that uh, that can be placed on the agenda if, if, if it needs to be agendized. The salary resolution would, would open up any amendment to the salary resolution. So a referral to staff could result in a memo to all board members, which is then also, by definition, a memo, a memo to, to the public. Uh, most of those are on the website and are attached to the agenda item. Information items and other things are also available to the public if they relate to a particular agenda item. So that, that, uh, that is one way of, of ensuring that your other board members know about an issue, but the public is also aware and can, can speak to the issue if they, if they have another viewpoint that they'd like to present. So uh, I could have hypothetically uh, gone to staff and said, I propose six or seven different amendments, here they are. Without any discussion on the amendments, uh, those potential amendments could have been presented in a memo to the board and to the public. That, uh, without knowing what they are, it's, it's hard to opine, but yes, in general, that's true. And that doesn't lead to uh, a predetermination if that's a, a good idea or a bad idea because there's no discussion. Correct. The, the, the staff can do an analysis. The, 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 the staff is not as, as restricted as the board in that respect. And, and most of the board memos that you see from staff do have a recommendation, do have an analysis, which informs the board but doesn't necessarily restrict the board if the board disagrees with that analysis. So there, there can be um, uh, some discussion in, in that sense uh, in, in the memo that is circulated, but uh, it, it should not be used to circumvent the notion that the board members can't discuss among themselves. But if a board member has a proposal, uh, the staff shouldn't take a, a position of recommendation for or against when presenting that memo to the other board members? Well, that's why this is, this is so tricky. I mean, there are, there are legal ramifications. There are political ramifications. Obviously, uh, staff shoots down a board member proposal at, at staff's peril. Um, the, uh, they could be listed, however, neutrally. And I have seen that, uh, for example, with respect to uh, um, in past administrations, uh, recommendations or non-recommendations with respect to the, what used to be the 10% transfer, uh, where staff was not comfortable making the recommendation of the 10% transfer. They simply placed it on the agenda without a recommendation. Similar things have been done with respect to, to sponsorships, for example, where, where staff tees it up for discussion at the meeting by the board members but without necessarily taking a position. And, and on, on the ability for the executive director to brief board members, uh, is, it, is, it, um, is it within the Brown Act or would it just be considered good policy 
that the executive director would meet with each board member individually instead of just a select few. And, and as far as sharing information to all, not to a select few. That, uh, that's not driven by the Brown Act. The, 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 the Brown Act, the, the statute itself, doesn't even include that exception. And, and for many years, we were uncertain as to whether that common practice was actually defensible and legal. Eventually, a case determined that as long as you stayed within the parameters, you were okay on that. Um, so it, it's permissive. It's not required. And, and again, that's where political and other considerations come into play, that um, uh, the, the, the Brown Act doesn't require that. I, I would say that um, uh, it's beyond the Brown Act as to whether staff can play favorites with, with a, a faction of a board or a council that, that, that staff feels more comfortable with. There are obvious political ramifications to that. So I, I think the best practice, although the, the act doesn't state it, is that you either use that tool or you don't use that tool. Partial use of the tool could, could arguably lead to um, uh, unintended consequences of, of people being out of the loop and, and that um, informative function actually not functioning in the, in the way it was intended. And, and uh, in regards to um, what's perceived to be majorities or, or minorities within a board or a council, um, bringing forward an item on an agenda uh, is the legal right of a board member or of a council member, and that has absolutely nothing to do whether there is a majority to support it or a majority to deny it. Is that that, that's correct, and I think, I think that dovetails with the, the, the policy of the Act, which is that um, rather than have run the risk that uh, a, a minority uh, is forced to discuss something outside of a meeting and, and run the risk of a violation, put it on the agenda. The majority can still shoot it down, can shoot it down summarily. There are, there are tools available to a majority to, to reject something without discussion even. So the, the, the ability to deal with um, controversial proposals or, or proposals that, that uh, the majority perceives not to be a useful uh, expenditure of the board's time uh, there, are, there are plenty of tools available to, to deal in short order with, with those proposals, but by putting it on the agenda, you at least provide an outlet so that there's no discussion outside of a meeting. Well, it, it, uh, and this is just my opinion, but it appears with the restrictions that the Brown Act has on uh, public policy-making boards that uh, if, if you have a uh, unanimous decision on every action taken, uh, it would almost appear that there's uh, some predetermination going on there. So may, perhaps it's healthy that sometimes you have split decisions on some actions taken. So thank you, Dominic. I really do appreciate it. It's very helpful and it provided a lot of insight. Thank you. Okay. Any further comments or questions? Uh, yes, uh, Commissioner. Uh, this, is a, this is a good refresher. This is a good refresher, so mm. thank you for that. Uh, the, um, the point about the executive director meeting with um, commissioners 
how does that how does that apply to s staff? Does, does that is that only for the executive director? I'm trying to understand because often the substance on a on a particular issue is is with the staff person, not really with the executive director. The um, the case was really about the common practice where uh, city managers routinely go from council office to council office on the day of, of, a, of a meeting and uh, provide last minute input that, that may not be part of the agenda package. You know, big crowd on this one, um, uh, a heads up so that uh, council members are not surprised. So it, it really just dealt with that existing practice and said that practice is fine. Uh, by extension, I think you can uh, apply it more generally. Uh, you know, if the executive director's not here and, and the deputy fills in that day, clearly that would also be appropriate. I, I think it, uh, it, that case doesn't really address the issue, but I think your question goes to issues of a board member seeking information from a particular staff member um, uh, and and that's that's also typically okay, but uh, the the concern here was the serial nature of the meetings, where um, it was clear that that in the course of the day the city manager was meeting with with every council member if 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 that was possible, and was that a serial violation? Yeah, I I guess. Um I mean, in terms of, of governance, you know, I, I think it's important for the, the board to relate primarily to the people that the board hires, who would be the executive director and the deputy. Exec, uh, deputy. But in, in terms of the real substance of issues that we need to um, be informed about, um, I mean, it's been my experience in the time I've been on this board that and we used to we used to do briefings in a different way than than they're being done now. But in any event, you know, I I would get a I would get a briefing from from staff about a project that's under underway, so that I can understand it in more depth before the item comes to the comes to the board. And and it's usually really the, and I mean I can't remember looking back whether the executive director. Is always there. I mean, the executive director certainly knew that this meeting was happening, but it's the staff people that have the knowledge about the the project or whatever that's that are the ones actually providing the the um, the information. So, I I guess that's what I was trying to get to. Is is there something? Is that okay? Is that? I I think that's that's fine, and, and it's it's it, in in most instances, and it's insulated by a couple of things. I think. Uh, firstly, some of those briefings, um, uh, project briefings in the early stages of a project, for example, are before any items are, are even scheduled for board approval. And uh, th those kinds of briefings that, that I've been involved in or have heard about have, have typically not involved anything even close to uh, a development of a consensus or a discussion of uh, so can we count on your vote on this commissioner uh, it, it, it's general information purpose uh, the purpose is general information to the board on, on some of the more complex things that the that the board has to make decisions about 
So I think I think it's analogous. Those those meetings are analogous to um, the the city manager briefings, albeit at a much earlier stage of of the process. And uh, when in doubt, I think it, it probably is better to to have even some of those briefings. And frequently, I've seen those briefings in these meetings when they're clearly issues of of board-wide interest, not just issues that one board member is interested in. Um, the, the, the decision that I've seen made frequently is to simply have a study session or a report at the beginning of a board meeting so that that, that can be uh, shared generally with the board. That, you know, that, that's always the safe course. But there, w there will inevitably be subjects that an, an individual board member is interested in getting a briefing on that other board members are not too concerned about. And I, I, don't, see, I don't see a problem with either of those practices. Um, and then um, I wondered if, if you could talk a little bit more about um, written um, communications. Uh, uh, Commissioner Dines was asking questions about, um, you know, when items are on the agenda and uh, a commissioner um, wants to propose certain language or certain amendments or, or whatever that that those could be submitted in in advance and then posted with the uh, on the agenda just like staff memos are posted on the agenda and as I understood what you said it could also include um, you know staff could give an could give an analysis of what the effect of of the proposals were or or whatever whether they make a recommendation one way or the other would be, be up to them. First, is that is that my understanding of how those things could be handled? Yes, I think that's correct. Okay, and th and then my other my other question is, what if um, a commissioner w wanted to write a letter to their or a memo to the, to other commissioners about a topic? Can uh, can a commissioner write a letter? Um, or a memo urging a, p a particular position. I, I understand it would be um, it would be subject to being, you know, revealed to the public. But is is that uh, is that can that be done? It, it it has happened in the past, and I, I I hesitate to say it can never be done because there may be some examples of topics that would be. Um, uh, uh, innocent enough, but I, th I think that the danger there is it's likely to happen on a topic that, that is a, a, a matter of the board's jurisdiction. It's unlikely to be so peripheral that, that it's outside of that, that policy that I quoted at the outset. And that in and of itself could be interpreted to be a communication outside a meeting. I, the, the argument might be, you know, the reason I did it was to tee up this discussion at at a meeting, and uh, and and certainly some of the facts that you quote, like having it in the in in the um, the backup to the meeting, making it a public record that everyone has access to in advance of the meeting, not just the other commissioners, would probably make it less likely that someone would latch on to it and apply a literal interpretation of the act, that that's a discussion outside a meeting. But I think you still are, one of the reasons we discourage that practice is you still are 
subject to a literal interpretation of the statute, that that is a discussion, that that memo discussed items. It was not in a public meeting, even though it was subsequently brought into a public meeting. And the mere fact, the mere existence of that memo is uh, an example of, of a discussion outside a meeting. I, I think given all the hypotheticals that you named where, where it, it's brought immediately into a public meeting, that's a bit of an extreme interpretation. But I think the, the, the advocates of open government here would take the position that uh, you never know when the memo is written, whether it's going to come straight into the open forum and be, be aired in public or whether it will be the beginning of a practice of board members writing memos back and forth which deprives the public of oversight. So it, it is risky, even, even with the hypotheticals that you wrapped around it. Okay, so, so would it be fair to say then you would discourage us from um, discussing or writing to one another about the, the merits of a particular issue? Yeah, I think, I think that, that paragraph I quoted at the beginning about any discussion outside a, a public meeting um, could be applied against any of, those, any of those tools, which makes it very difficult for you. I understand that, uh, that uh, discussing things only at this podium with the cameras bearing down on you is, is difficult. It, it, it's something that, that um, uh, the board members and council members grapple with all the time. I recently did um, uh, a presentation on the um, on Robert's rules for potential commissioners for the Garcetti administration, and there were several um, uh, commissioners and council members there who had uh, served time and who were there to share their experiences with. Um, with the potential commissioners, and that was the one issue that was discussed in greater detail than any other. How do you deal with that issue of being precluded from discussing anything outside of a meeting uh, with the, the sensitive and, and difficult topics that these commissions deal with? Okay, thank you. Any further comments or questions? Okay, seeing there are none. Thank you very much for bringing this forward to us. Thank you very much, and thank you for grappling with these issues on a daily basis. I know it's not easy. Okay. That